Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. On this episode, we'll be talking about supply problems that are affecting GP practices, namely delays to flu vaccine deliveries and the NHS-wide blood test tube shortage. We'll be looking at what this means for practices and the knock-on impact for patients. We'll also be looking at the state of the BMA and NHS England's relationship now that the BMA has agreed to restart formal talks after a five-month break. Later in the podcast, Luke will be talking to junior doctor Dr Ellie Reid, who is one of the doctors behind the Just a GP campaign, which is aiming to tackle the stigma and prejudice in medical schools towards general practice. And finally, we have a bit of good news, which this week relates to primary care networks. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, last week, GP practices were ordered to stop all non-urgent blood tests until the 17th of September because of a national shortage of blood test tubes. The shortage came to light earlier in August, but the situation appears to be getting worse, with NHS England warning that supply will become even more constrained before things get better. Meanwhile, at the end of last week, major flu vaccine supplier Securus contacted GP practices across the country warning that their flu jab deliveries could be delayed by up to two weeks because of unforeseen road freight challenges. Both of these situations left already overstretched practices facing even more work rearranging blood test appointments and flu clinics and also dealing with angry patients upset about delays to their blood tests in particular. Nick, let's start with the blood test tube shortage. What's going on here? So GP practices were initially told in early August uh, to stop non-essential tests because of a global shortage of blood tubes. And a few weeks later, restrictions were stepped up further and practices were told that only clinically urgent tests could continue. So as things stand, all primary care and community testing has been halted until the 17th of September, with a handful of exceptions. GPs can still carry out blood testing in situations, uh, including as part of a cancer referral, or where sepsis is suspected, or where safe prescribing is impossible without a test. They can also order a blood test where doing so could prevent a, a hospital admission or referral. A major supplier of blood tubes to the NHS, Beckton Dickinson, or BD, uh, has given some background on what's driving this shortage. It says the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a big change in the types of blood tests and the volume of tests being carried out around the world, and that this has made demand for its products much more unpredictable. They've also blamed global transportation delays that have delayed deliveries, uh, not only of their own products, but of the raw materials and parts that they need to make them. Yeah, well, blood tests are pretty critical um, for GPs. They're a pretty critical tool for, for all doctors. So do we know how long this is likely to go on for? NHS England has said it expects the position to improve from the middle of September, although it's also warned that supply will remain challenging for a significant period. It's obviously difficult to draw many conclusions from that, other than that restrictions on blood testing are likely to remain in place to some extent for a good while yet. What we do know, however, is that, is that BD, the supplier I mentioned just now, has managed to secure 9 million tubes from elsewhere in the world to top up UK supplies. And it says its UK manufacturing facility has upped production capacity by 20%. Uh, the company's also said it's working to boost production at sites around the world and to speed up shipments to support NHS blood testing capacity. I mentioned at the start that some practices have reported receiving abuse and complaints from patients because of the tests being cancelled. I mean, the BMA have called on the government to publicly take responsibility for the issue, haven't they? They've also been highly critical about the fact that it's even got to this stage. Yeah, GPs have been reporting a rise in abuse throughout the pandemic, uh, often related to delays in care caused by the pandemic or access to face-to-face -face appointments, for example. 
And the fact that practices have now had to cancel routine blood tests has just added to this. Uh, telling patients their normal checkups are being delayed or stopped is obviously a message that may not go down well. Uh, but the BMA is saying the government can't just leave GPs and practice staff to take the blame. It wants a public information campaign to help people understand the problem. Uh, and they've called for an investigation into how the shortfall as a whole has, has happened. So moving on to flu, the issue with flu jabs came to light last week. What's the problem there and what's been the upshot of all this for practices? So the, the biggest UK supplier of flu vaccines, Securus, told GPs last week that deliveries of flu vaccine would be delayed by up to two weeks. This meant practices that had booked in their first vaccination clinics in mid-September have been forced to, uh, to contact patients to cancel appointments and they'll only be able to rebook once a new delivery date is confirmed. The government says it's too early to talk about a flu vaccine shortage and that the campaign overall won't be delayed. But jabs for patients who were in line for the first GP flu clinics of the year have been held up, meaning extra admin for practices, worry for patients and potentially more confusion if a COVID-19 booster campaign gets going later this month. One factor that stands out about this is that the flu vaccine supplier blamed unforeseen road freight challenges uh, for the uh, delay in its deliveries, which sounds fairly similar to the global transportation delays cited by the supplier of blood tubes. The BMA says it's really concerned about the apparently similar factors behind these two problems and has called for the government to get on with sorting out the problem. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So up next, after a five-month break, the BMA last week agreed to restart formal talks with NHS England. In a previous episode of the podcast, we talked about how the relationship between the two organisations broke down following a letter that NHS England sent to GP practices, ordering them to provide face-to-face appointments to any patient who wanted one. The letter, which was briefed to the media before being sent to practices themselves, led to widespread media coverage about problems with face-to-face access, which in turn led to practices facing a wave of abuse and complaints. Luke, following that letter, the BMA decided to withdraw from formal talks with NHS England. Why Why did it make that move? Yeah, so above all, the vote of no confidence and withdrawing from official talks, they were supposed to be a sort of wake-up call for health leaders and for the government. Um, there was widespread anger, frustration and disappointment among GPs after that letter was sent out in May, which suggested that practices um, weren't seeing patients face-to-face or that they should offer face-to-face options to, to the patients. Um, and there was also a general feeling at that time that GPs weren't getting the recognition that they deserve for their efforts during the pandemic pandemic but were actually being um, oddly criticised. So overall the profession felt let down I think it's fair to say by health leaders and the government. So the GPC voted to suspend talks to show the strength of its disappointment and um, just to take a stand against what um, it had called cavalier behaviour from NHS England and, and the government. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a bit hard to underestimate how how cross people were about that letter. I mean, particularly when, you know, as we've reported um, several times, um, GPs have been seeing patient pa- patients face to face throughout the pandemic. And, um, you know, they've not been closed, despite what many media outlets would would like to people to believe. Um, so what's what's the situation now? And why has the BMA decided to get back round the table now? I mean, why the change of heart? 
Yeah, so from the statement that was published at the end of last week, um, it appears that the main reason talks have restarted is to ensure that the GPC is around the table when important negotiations are happening. So all the while that official talks have been suspended, the BMA has, I guess, had less influence over what's going into contracts and such things, um, which has led to less favourable conditions for for GPs who are carrying out this work, obviously. Um, So we've seen evidence of this um, loss of influence with the weight management enhanced service, which the VMA called fundamentally flawed when that was released, and um, and also with GPs being told that they can't give booster jabs at um, individual practice level, that was also something that the BMA said ignored the voice um, of GPs. So it would appear that the GPC are sort of willing to put their differences aside to make sure that they are able to influence contract negotiations once again. Um, but the statement also sort of says that uh, the BMA have seen initial signs of progress towards a shift in behaviour from health leaders um, and they cite uh, the scrapping of the SOP, deferring PCN targets and providing additional PCN management funding. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that um, NHS England and the government aren't out of jail yet. The GP committee chair, Dr Richard Vautry, made it very clear in the statement that there is still much work to be done um, to rebuild trust among GPs. And the vote um, that happened the other day, the emergency vote, that only passed by 60% in favour of restarting talks, meaning that just under 40% um, of, of members didn't want to restart talks, I think it's quite clear that there's still some degree of division among GPs about how they feel on this. Yes, there's been some further repercussions on this since then, hasn't there, Nick? Uh, That's right. Some senior members of the BMA's GP committee have stood down, citing a lack of confidence in the leadership of the committee. Uh, Two of the people who've resigned are the committee's policy lead, Dr Julius Parker, and deputy policy lead, Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer. They handed in their notice by email before the result of the vote that paved the way for these talks to restart was known. But the resignations are linked to the return to talks. And it's clear that uh, not everyone within the GPC uh, is happy with the direction of travel. Right. OK, well, we'll have to see what happens with uh, these formal talks resuming and and whether or not any contract changes that come out of them um, seem to be more beneficial to GPs than perhaps they have been recently. So we're joined today by Dr. Ellie Reid. Welcome to the Talking General Practice podcast. Dr. Reid is a junior doctor and recently started F1 training at Kingston Hospital. She is one of the junior doctors behind the Just a GP campaign, which aims to tackle the stigma and prejudice towards general practice in medical schools. She co-created the video with Dr. David Simmons, who is on F1 training at Torbay Hospital. And um, the video asked some of the UK's top GPs, including a former RCGP chair, what it's like to work in general practice and asked them to bust some of the common myths um, associated with the discipline. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the Talking General Practice podcast, Dr. Reid. Thank you very much. And to start the pod off today, I just thought you could give us a brief description of what the Just a GP campaign is all about and um, sort of what it aims to do and how the idea came came about. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's kind of cast our minds back, I suppose. So we, like all medical students, had to do a medical elective this year. And I think originally we all had sort of grand plans of going to far-flung countries and doing exotic things. Um, but obviously the current climate meant we couldn't do that. Um, so we had to sort of be a bit more creative about what we could do. And I think lots of other people went into hospitals and did a sort of, um, you know, another sort of placement type thing. But I actually, initially, I, it came about because I had a conversation with my partner 
partner who is a cameraman who filmed um, the video for us and it was him that said you know why don't you do something a bit more creative uh, try and kind of use some other skills that you've got so I kind of thought back to a conversation that I'd had um, with Dave who did the video with me um, and and to some conversations that we'd had um, multiple times really throughout our time as medical students about how we both are quite keen on general practice. It's something we've really enjoyed throughout our time at medical school um, had some, you know, been very lucky to have some really great placements. And it's just a career that we both see that we would suit and really enjoy. Um, but that, that wasn't always kind of met with positivity from both kind of fellow medical students and also some clinicians um, that we'd met along the way. So we'd always kind of discuss like, what can we do about this? How can we address it? And, and I kind of put, I guess, both those things together and approached Dave and said, you know, how do you fancy putting it into a video and, and trying to address it that way? Um, and he was really keen. And uh, so it kind of went from there, really. So when you were both sort of um, at medical school, obviously, yeah, you sort of you became aware of of the maybe sort of prejudice towards general practice and general attitudes towards sort of choosing that as a um, as a discipline. One of the questions I had was just like around where do you think this comes from, this sort of attitude and just how prevalent it is? So was it was it quite sort of a common thing to hear people talk about general practice in in a sort of, I guess, a negative way? Yeah, I think um, obviously we. I can only speak from sort of personal experience, um, and I'm sure different people have different um, experiences about this. I, I think the first thing to say is that there are clearly stereotypes throughout the whole of medicine, regardless really of specialty. Um, and I think everybody could kind of come up with something they'd heard that was negative about their own specialty. It's, it's almost a bit of sort of, um, I think really in a lot of ways, it's a bit of sort of harmless, friendly competition, like which camp are you in kind of thing. But I, but I kind of feel like, certainly from my point of view, um, and perhaps this is because it was what I was interested in, but I just found it was slightly unfairly weighted towards um, general practice. So I think the thing that I found um, really was that people kind of just talked about it like um, it was the thing you did as a default. Um, so sort of if you didn't try and you just went through medical school and did the default option, you would become a GP. And so if that that was a waste if that's what you actively wanted to do because that was kind of always a backup plan and you should aspire to do something better or bigger or you know more fancy. So I, I, that was kind of the general message I think I got I, overall um, through lots of different ways and, and often not completely directly, but we talk about it, um, you know, in the film. And, and it's it's interesting that we put the same question you've put to me to the GPs that we interviewed and none of them found it difficult to come up with examples of, of things they'd heard. It was kind of that knowing smile. They'd all heard it, too. Um, both as sort of medical students and in some part as professionals. So I, I, it's, it clearly is something that lots of people experience. Um, so, yeah, I think that was that was it for me, really. It was that, you know, this whole you'd be wasted as a GP. And, and it kind of irritated me because it's, a you know, from what I'd seen and the experience I'd had, it's a really difficult and rewarding job. And, and obviously I'm, I'm basing this on the GPs I met. And I was obviously very lucky to have placements with really great GPs. Um, but I, I just found that a bit unfair that, that it was kind of like, you know, it, it required no effort and everybody would kind of come off the conveyor belt and be a GP if they didn't try harder. 
Yeah. And I think, well, as far as I know, it's quite a common thing as or, or from hearing from you guys, but also just in reports. So there was a report published by the RCGP and the Medical Schools Council in 2017, which found that sort of over three quarters of medical um, students had heard clinicians, trainers or academics making negative remarks about uh, general practice by the fifth year of, um, of university. I don't know if you've got any specific examples that you can sort of share. There's been a lot really along the way. So I think the, the most common one and the one that medical students will probably um you know ag- agree with the most is that one where a clinician will stand up and say well you know half of you are going to be gps anyway in this room as if kind of what they're about to teach is irrelevant for for half of us or um you know it goes back to what i was saying that that kind of oh well you know almost almost said like half of you are going to kind of fail in in becoming specialists so therefore you'll be a generalist um so that that said quite commonly I think that kind of throwaway remark at the beginning of a lecture I've heard that several times um I remember being told by um one clinician that I wasn't going to make any money if I wanted to be a GP um that I was going to have a really miserable life because I'd be poor um then you know just things like being bored it being boring I think that's definitely a a really common throwaway comment and that's probably actually more from medical students who have this perception that uh you know being in general practice is all about you know people who come in with coughs and colds and don't kind of not seen as genuinely ill they're probably the most common like I say the default option the fact that it's not got great prospects that's probably more than money specifically it's probably about you know you're not going to publish papers and you won't um, be able to get high up in education and you're not going to have other opportunities um and the fact yeah that it's seen as as boring and and not stimulating so how yeah how does that did it sort of change your mind in terms of what you wanted to go into or did you think oh maybe I shouldn't want to sort of enter general practice this much but it definitely has an impact and I definitely have had moments where I thought oh, maybe I shouldn't do it and it's put me off um so I I think it can have a really detrimental effect because we're quite we're very influenced you know we don't have the experience that these clinicians do we're, we're trying to kind of absorb as much as we can that's what you're taught to do as a medical student and so of course opinions are going to be part of that so you're very easily molded I think and you can develop opinions that perhaps you think are your own but actually they've kind of been fed to you possibly. So in July you published the um, Just a GP video when did you decide to make the video and why did you feel like you had to make it? Yeah I think we were just a bit tired of hearing kind of some of the stuff we've discussed I guess is probably the the best way to summarise it. Um, it was something we were aware there was quite a lot um, being talked about. So we we knew it wasn't just something we were experiencing. We'd read quite a lot of the um, articles that have been written. There's quite a lot of research out there that we'd read. We'd had a kind of very brief conversation with um, Dr. Judith Iberson, who's in the film, um, about it. And she had said, oh, you know, yeah, that would, that would be great. And I think... Um, Perhaps we thought, given that we'd experienced it and that there was a lot of conversation about it, but we didn't, we hadn't seen anything quite like the video we've made to try and address it. And actually, I think when we, when it came down to it, we thought the the problem really is a lack of understanding. And again, I think that's a theme throughout the film. You know, the penny dropped to me one time I was getting 
sort of, you know, some advice, shall we say, from a clinician who was not a GP. And I left. I remember discussing it with a GP, actually, um, who had taught me throughout the years. And he said to me, you know, I don't understand why people who haven't done the job feel so qualified to give advice about it. And that was the first time I thought, actually, that's very true. You know, you wouldn't go and speak to a dentist about what it's like to be a pilot. So why are we sort of speaking to um, surgeons or hospital medics about what it's like to be a GP when they've not done it and experienced it. Mm. And in terms of the people you get on the on the video, there's um, former RCGP chair Helen Stokes Lampard. How how easy was it to get people of sort of quite high profile to appear on the video? Were they quite keen when when you approached them? Yeah, I mean, so we were quite lucky in that. So Helen Stokes Lampard is a former St George's student, so um, there was already a sort of connection there. Um, and our supervisor had kind of good contact with her. So that's kind of how we how we contacted her initially. But um, what was actually really amazing to us is that everybody we asked was keen to be in it. And there were there were a couple of people that couldn't because of, you know, dates or whatever. But um, everybody said, oh, you know, yes, this is a, a really important issue. I definitely want to be involved. And we were quite taken aback by that. We thought that some people might say, oh, you know, I don't really fancy it. Um, but I guess that helped to kind of cement the reason why we were doing it, that there, there wasn't a GP we approached that didn't um, agree that this needed to be made. So that was quite nice. And um, and yeah, you know, like you say, we were really lucky to have some people, um, very high profile people. Um, and it was great to hear from them and hear, you know, their journey as well and how actually even with their sort of success and track record. And I don't think you can have done much more than Helen Soaks Lampard in terms of being successful. And yet she'd still heard all the same things um, that, that we were kind of discussing earlier. So I think that was um, quite shocking, really. <laughs> just how sort of how important is it that medical students they hear I guess maybe hear these myths being bust or they just hear GPs who are very experienced sort of talking about the job how how do you think that the video could change their mind or maybe just um, reassure them that general practice is something that they should be proud of, of going into I think I guess the main aim was because I think we were very, very clear from the start. We did not want to make a GP recruitment video. That was not the point because that's been done. There are organisations that, you know, that's kind of their job to recruit GPs. Our message was quite clear and our aim was quite clear that we wanted to um, just give a fair representation of what it was like to give medical students the opportunity to choose or not choose general practice as you know something that they might be interested in so i so i think the importance of it is that it, if someone is interested in general practice and is finding that they're then perhaps either not able to get information directly from gps about the job um, or they're getting advice from people who haven't experienced general practice then I think this video is a great source of information actually and and you know unlike I guess a GP recruitment video where it's kind of um fancy and we only talk about the good stuff we try to kind of make it a bit more um 
I guess, documentary style where we did address some of the more frank issues um, and get a frank response. And it worked really well because when we did, we got that, we got kind of authentic responses from the people that were in it. To me, it's very important. I wish I'd have had something like that when I was um, in medical school and, and was kind of hearing these things to put my mind at rest that actually, no, it is very legitimate career with lots of prospects um, and you know, some of the stories that came out of the film that we made of, of individual patient interactions are incredible. Um, and, you know, these people do this every day. And so it, even interviewing them made me excited about general practice. So, um, you know, I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. And how's the video been been received? What feedback have you had from from people and medical students? So yeah, I mean, we're really really pleased with how it's gone. I think we we didn't really know would we put it out and it would just sort of disappear into the internet or would something happen with it? And you know, we've been we've been really taken aback actually by how many people have seen it um, and kind of commented on it and contacted us about it it's quite exciting that it's done as well as it has. And I think it's certainly surpassed our expectations of a kind of, you know, five week elective project. Um, and is the campaign, is it something that you're going to continue? And would you think about sort of doing a second follow-up video or anything? It's it's clearly a really good way of delivering a message, starting a conversation and kind of setting the record straight. Um, we kind of thought it would be, and, and it's kind of proof that that is, it's it, like I said, it keeps people's attention. Um, and I think that's really important in the day and age we live in. I'd love to say there's something in the pipeline at the moment. I think both Dave and I are just focusing on getting through um, F1. It's certainly not in the short term, but but watch this space because it's it's something I think we both really enjoy doing and um, clearly, you know, it, it works quite well. Thanks for your time today, uh, Ellie. It's been really interesting talking about the stigma surrounding general practice um, in within medical schools and how your video is helping to combat that. Um, as we mentioned earlier, the video, the Just GP um, video campaign is on YouTube or you can visit their uh, Twitter at just a GP campaign. Thanks again for your time and good luck with the rest of F1 training. Thanks so much to Dr. Ellie Reed for taking the time to talk to Luke this week. We've put a link to the video in the description of this episode of the podcast. So finally today, we just have time for our good news. And this week, it relates to primary care networks. Luke, what is the good news? So NHS England recently confirmed that it's going to defer PCN service requirements. So only two instead of the arranged four will begin um, from October this year and they will be largely um, reduced. So that's the CVD prevention and diagnosis and the tackling health inequalities um, specifications. Um, the BMA did call for um, a deferral a few weeks ago, arguing that GPs were working harder than ever. Um, so as you can as you can tell from that, it's a good sign because it, it reduces the workload that it, that is on GPs at the at the minute going into a potential COVID booster and um, and obviously with the flu campaign underway. Um, the second bit of good news out of that announcement was that there's going to be an additional forty three million pounds of funding to support PCN management in twenty twenty one. 22, although they haven't said if this will be continued into further financial years. Um, I guess another bit of good news within that is that clinical directors will help to decide how the funding is deployed um, to create new capacity um, to focus on PCN work. So obviously with the, with the money, it's just an extra bit of funding that PCN directors have to, to have to play with.
Nick, NHS England uh, has said it intends to engage practices with networks via the Investment and Impact Fund, basically the QOF for PCNs, which is voluntary. But there's also some possible good news about changes to the way that's going to work, isn't there? Yeah, so GP leaders have been asking NHS England to bring the way that the Investment and Impact Fund uh, money is distributed to primary care networks more closely in line with the way QOF payments work. So practices receive the bulk of QOF funding each year up front through a monthly aspiration payment, and then the balance is paid through an achievement payment at the end of each financial year or after the end of each financial year. But PCNs are currently paid for performance against the uh, Investment and Impact Fund only through achievement payments. So that the bulk of that comes at the end of each financial year. Um, and it looks as if there's going to be a shift from 2022-23 uh, towards paying some of the money up front, which means that, uh, that PCNs will have access to that money a little bit earlier and can use it to support some of the work throughout the financial year rather than having to wait for it all to come through right at the end. Yeah, while all this is broadly positive, though, there is a slight sting in the tail. Um, we've reported this week about concerns over some of the work that's involved in the health inequality service specification Isn't that right, Luke? Yeah, so it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Um, So the first concern is just over targets set for online consultations. So under one of the IIF um, indicators, it says that practices will be expected to provide five online consultations per 1,000 patients per week. Um, But the BMA said that the targets are disingenuous um, and that comes after um, GPs were attacked for not um, offering enough face-to-face consultations with patients. Um, And there's also... So I've been told there's a worry that these targets could be increased in the future, um, which would, I guess, sort of force people's hands um, to how they offer um, care to their patients, um, which people might not want. And then there's also another bit within um, the PCN work where PCNs have been asked to collect ethnicity data for all all of their their patients from October this year. However, a senior GP has pointed out to us that um, a lot of this has already been done. So with the COVID vaccine campaign ethnicity data has been collected for millions of patients um and it's sitting in a in a in a spreadsheet somewhere um so he said that this data should be uploaded to patient records and to individual practice records um to ensure that there's no duplication of work because otherwise gps are going to be chasing exactly the same information twice yeah well so it's a, a sort of good news week this week not a a big on yeah, big old happy good news one but sort of good news <laughs> Anyone listening, if you've got examples of good news from general practice that you would like us to highlight on future episodes of the podcast, either relating to work going on in your practice or community or the achievements of someone in your team, then do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at gponline.com. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Nick and Luke and also to Dr. Ellie Reid for speaking with Luke this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at GPOnlineNews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.